If you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. That is in the second half of your Bible. It's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, and Romans, and 1 Corinthians. I won't name the ones that are after it. That's just name all 27. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. As you're turning there, let me remind us, because it is worth being reminded of, but what, what is preaching? We do this every week. It's a huge part of the Christian life. It's helpful to know what in the world is this, why should we listen? Well, preaching is whenever a man who is called by God delivers God's message about Jesus Christ to you, God's people, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And whenever the preacher is faithful to the Word of God, this is what Scripture says, particularly in Romans 10, you can be confident that Jesus is speaking to you. But it's not me as if it's my own message, but it's just as I deliver God's message from the Word to you, you can be confident that as I'm speaking, Jesus is speaking to you. It's awesome because all of us stand in need of the gospel of grace. So many of us bring in so much worries and concerns and convictions, and we need to hear some good news. So hear now the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are indeed very great and glorious. And even those words cannot adequately picture you in your totality. True words, but words that fall so short of how great and glorious you are. And we know that during this time that you are drawing near to us through the word. This time, the time of worshiping you centers here as you bring us to you through Christ. So would you now speak to our hearts and would you transform our souls that we might, as we live in this body, go forth into the world praising and glorifying you in all of life. Let us hear from you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. What would you do if when you were in a, a foreign land, if you had three witch, doc, witch doctors threaten your life? Maybe you didn't think that's how the sermon would begin. John Patton, a missionary who I've often talked about, he was a missionary to the South Sea Islands in the New Hebrides. He often lived in danger as he worked among the hostile natives there who had never heard the gospel. And at one point during his missionary years here, three witch doctors who claimed to have the power to cause death they publicly declared their intentions to kill John Patton with their sorcery before the coming Sunday. 
to carry out their threat, they said they needed some food that he had partially eaten. And so here's what John Patton did. This is crazy. He asked for three plums, and he took a bite out of each of them and then gave them to those men. On Sunday, John Patton, the missionary, he entered the village with a smile on his face and a spring in his step. The people of the tribe looked at each other in amazement because they couldn't believe that he was alive. Their witch doctors, who were quote-unquote sacred men, had admitted that they tried all their incantation, incantations to kill him. But when they asked When they were asked why they had failed, they replied that the missionary himself, John Patton, that he was a sacred man, but that his God was stronger than theirs. Let me ask you a question. Do you have that kind of confidence in God? Do you have that kind of confidence that no matter what approaches you in life, that the God of the Bible has you? And is with you. And will send you forth with his gospel message. And no one and nothing is more strong than that. Are you confident? Confident in him. Confidence. Is what Paul is talking about here. Confidence. In verse 4 it says that we have through Christ toward God. And that's the big question we want to ask this morning. Do you have this confidence? And if you don't have it, where can you get it? Look back at verses 4 through 5. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Then he gives a negative. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Before we learn about what it means to be confident before God, we actually need to learn where we should not put our confidence. And this is very countercultural because it says very plainly here don't put confidence in yourself. Now, don't, don't shoot the messenger yet, just hear me out. Don't put confidence in yourself. What is confidence? It is helpful to be reminded. Well, this word confidence in the Greek more accurately means persuasion. It means to be persuaded that you're in the right or persuaded that you have the ability. And when Paul says here, it says we have confidence through Christ, he doesn't just say we had confidence in Christ or that we will have confidence in Christ. He's saying that as long as we're in Christ, we presently always have this confidence. In other words, Paul is saying that never at any point are we supposed to put confidence in ourselves. But today, we live in a world where self-confidence is considered the number one moral of the day. If you don't have it, then you're seen as somehow less than human, and that means you need to do all that you can in your life to get self-confidence. And we also see that because of this being the number one moral of the day, if anyone in our lives hinders us from having self-confidence, then they're seen as the ultimate sinner. This self-confidence leads to the idea that we are somehow self-sufficient. You see that word 
In verse 5, Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves. What is self-sufficiency? Well, to give you an illustration, there was a, a famous brain surgeon guy by the name of Dr. Bronson Ray who was walking down the street one day when he saw a boy on a scooter smash headfirst into a tree. And realizing that the boy was seriously injured, the doctor told a bystander to call an ambulance. And as he went to give first aid to the boy, a boy who was not much older than the boy who crashed into the tree, he nudged his way through the crowd and he came beside Dr. Ray and he said, Dr. Ray, I better take over now. I'm a Boy Scout. I know first aid. That is self-confidence and self-sufficiency. Ignoring someone who actually knows something to think that we know everything. You see, by thinking that we are self-sufficient, we treat God the same way. Because whenever I think I'm self-sufficient, I look at God and I say, you don't know the best plan for my life. I do. So I will seek to live according to me and my desires. I will follow my heart. But I won't follow yours. We don't like to be like David who was a man after God's own heart. We like to be like Judas, where we are men and women after our own hearts. Paul says, actually, we're to do all that we can to repent of self-confidence and self-sufficiency. It's interesting, in verse 5, actually, in the original language, that word sufficient is front-loaded, meaning it's putting a lot of emphasis on this. It's saying that if anything you learn right here, don't be self-sufficient. Because it's contrary to your life with God. Once again, this word, it says not that we are self-sufficient or not that we are sufficient. Notice Paul doesn't say that we were sufficient or that we maybe will be sufficient. Paul is saying anytime, whenever in your life, never get to the point where you think you are sufficient. Whenever we are sufficient, it says that we try to claim things to come from us. You see that right there. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. That's what Paul's, Paul's opponents were in ministry. They were claiming that somehow their quote-unquote ministry, that it was really just from them and their power and their influence, their gifts. Paul says actually we're to have nothing to do with claiming things as if they came strictly from us. This word for claim, this is so interesting. It means to logically reason with someone. It means you're logically trying to reason with someone saying, see, this is what I did in your life. Not, not God. I might mention him. I might mention Jesus, but really I'm the primary influence. It's the picture of like a child standing in front of his house with one of those toy hammers saying, I built this house. It's ridiculous. Paul says, rather, our sufficiency is from God. On the contrary, one of the things we need to remember about what it means to grow into Christian maturity 
is that Christian maturity is seen in more and more when we repent of self-confidence and self-sufficiency. When we act like we are sufficient on our own, we can boast in who our family is. Maybe our immediate family or maybe our extended family, but we think that really the reason why God uses us is because of our family. Or we boast in who we know. Maybe we don't have the family, but we at least know people. Or maybe we love to boast and think we're sufficient because of what we've done. It's so easy that even when God gives us a good family, and when he gives us good people to know, when he gives us certain gifts, it's so easy to look at those things and say, oh yeah, that, there's a reason why God's blessing me, because I have these things, but we forget where those things come from. God can, as Job says, he can just as easily take them away as he gave them. You see, self Confidence and self-sufficiency, they're both pride. It says in James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Let him be assured he will not go unpunished. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from this world. Talking about the sinful age. If you're like me, then not many of us are like Moses or Mary. Did you know that actually there's good reason to think based on the Hebrew words that are used of Moses that he had some form of special needs, particularly in speech. And that's the person who God chose to be his prophet. But oftentimes, even and especially when you stand up in the pulpit, you can say, oh yeah, I know why God chose me. We're also not like Mary who when she was told that she would give birth even though she was a virgin, that she would somehow give birth to the Savior, notice that she did not look back at the angel and say, oh, of course you chose me. I am clearly the most godly and righteous. Actually, what she did, she said, how, how can that happen? How is, that doesn't happen like that. We need to learn to repent of our self-confidence and self-sufficiency. Because when we live in self-confidence and self-sufficiency, we see that this way of life, it kills rather than gives life. Look at verse 6, very last sentence there. For the letter, and I'll explain what that means in a little bit, the letter kills, but the spirit, which is the opposite, gives life. The letter, what is that? Here's what it is. When Paul is saying the letter... He was talking about literally the external writing of God's law on the tablets, the stone tablets. 
the external law, not the law, the law that's written on our hearts as we're born again by the Holy Spirit, but just the outside law that even though we are dead in our sins, we would look at God's law and say, yeah, I can do that. No, you can't. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. But we often, in our self-confidence and self-sufficiency, we think we can obey God by our own power. We think we can obey God's law without God's power. So that's often why we live in a form of pride where we think we're good people and we don't need God's help. There's a phrase for this, we call it legalism. Legalism is the way of life where we think we're good in ourselves, we're good Christian people, we don't need God or other Christians, especially less mature Christians. We don't need them because we're good. We got it. That's legalism. But there's another way of pride. This way of pride is where we, we do. We still think we're good people and we don't need anyone's help. We just need to obey ourselves. We call this antinomianism. Anti meaning no, nome, nomian meaning law, meaning no law, meaning I don't need to live according to God's law, I can just obey my own desires. But the problem with that is you're still trying to obey a law, it's just the law of your own sinful heart. The problem with both of these is still pride. Because all of us in here think, we believe the original lie of Satan, we think, I can be God. And I don't need God for me to try to be me. That way of living kills. That type of ministry kills is what Paul says. That word for kill is actually much more gruesome in the Greek. It actually means, it's a, there's different words for kill in the Greek. This one is a more violent term. It means to kill violently. It means to slaughter. It's actually used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Exodus 32. Do you all remember what happens in Exodus 32? Moses is up on the mountain getting the law from God. The people of, of Israel are down in the valley and they're worshiping a golden calf. They're, uh, they're idolizing they're breaking God's very law that God's giving to Moses right then. And the, the punishment for that, the legal judicial sentence of this, it says in Exodus 32, that the sons of Levi would go throughout the camp and slaughter the people who had sinned. Because the wages of sin is death. Paul is... We'll explain more in the weeks to come. He is probably thinking about this scene because he's going to quote a lot from Exodus 32, 33, and 34. Here's what Paul is trying to tell us. That whenever you reject the worship of God to worship yourself, whether that worship of self means this, oh, well, I like God's law, but I can do it on my own ability. Or if you say, well, I don't really like God's law, I'm just going to obey myself. Either way, that is a form of worshiping self and pride. And whenever we do that, it kills us and it kills others.
pride is anything that points us away from Jesus, not only to be converted, but also to change. So my friends, let me ask you a question. Have you gotten too comfortable with your own rhythms of life and have you ceased looking to God for help? Paul says in Romans 7, 10 through 11, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Here's the thing about our pride. Really what we need is not to be told, hey, you're good on your own. What you need to be told is you're toast. Because if you really understood God's holy standard, you would realize that you do not live up to it, but you do the very opposite, and punishment's coming. Happy Sunday morning. But see, this is why Jesus had to come and save us, because we couldn't do it on our own. Amen? You might be new here. I'm a feedback preacher. I want to know you're alive. Jesus had to come and save us because we couldn't do it. He had to come and save us because we could not obey God's law perfectly, but he did. He came to get underneath the weight of the law to lift it up because it was crushing us. And that's why Paul is saying, if you do anything, do not have confidence in yourself. Repent of that. So where should you put your confidence in? Look at verse 4. Put your confidence in Christ. Put your confidence in the Son of God. It says there, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. That word through is actually here meaning that Jesus Christ is the only cause of having confidence. He is the sole cause. Meaning this, our confidence cannot be located anywhere else but in Christ. That Jesus Christ is not just a, a helpful assistant to you. He's everything to you. All confidence that is located anywhere else is just counterfeit. That's what Paul's saying. He's telling these people who are being tempted to think, do we need to follow Paul and his gospel ministry or do we need to follow these other teachers who are, who are boasting about Jesus plus something else? Paul's saying this, if you put your confidence anywhere else, you're going to kill each other. But the gospel of grace gives life. Put your confidence solely, only in Christ. Why do we do that? Why are we confident through Christ? Well, you actually see here in verse 6, it says God's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. We talked about this a little bit last week. A covenant is a type of relationship with someone. I love what one person says, a, a, what is a covenant? It is a conditional promise between God and humanity. And in that conditional promise, God, he promises blessings if we obey. But then if we don't obey, he threatens curses. There's blessings and curses. It's, college students, you know this. It's like when you just signed maybe a lease for your new uh, home or apartment. You, you do your part, your landlord will do their part. If you don't do your part, landlord will kick you out. And then you'll be calling me and JR saying, I need a new place to live. 
But what Jesus has done is that he's established a new covenant. He is the one who was perfectly obedient to the Father and fulfilling the covenant of works. He is the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who would take the flood of God's wrath that was seen in the covenant with Noah so that he might deliver us. Jesus is the one who was the true man of faith, but yet on the cross he was cut off from God so that he could fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed the Mosaic law and yet also became the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the one who was born in the lineage of David to bring the kingdom of heaven and to, and to crush God's enemies so that he would ascend to the throne of heaven. And Jesus is the one who would fulfill the new covenant that by sending the Holy Spirit, he would change people's hearts. I, 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 just, I just read a lot there about Jesus. Are you all alive here? Do you not see what he's done? No one else can do this. He fulfills the obligations and he takes the curses, amen? No one else is like that. Who in the world do we think we are when we think, Jesus, you're good, but I can do the rest. But because he fulfilled the covenant for us, he gives us the blessings he gives us the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We actually see that in verse 3. The Holy Spirit who changes our hearts, who makes us alive, who, who makes us more godly, who gives us the desire to obey God's law, and we do grow in obeying God's law. That was prophesied in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And my friends, it's happening right now. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. The prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled right now, here in Stillwater. Have you seen people be changed? Have you seen people believe in Jesus? How in the world is there even a Christian church here in Stillwater 2,000 years after Jesus who died in Jerusalem? My friends, if that's not an apologetic for the reality of the Bible and the Christian religion, then I don't know what is. The only reason why we're here is because Jesus fulfilled the covenant and he's blessed us. He's changed us. I remember going back to my high school several years afterward. I think this was probably around 2016. and uh, I graduated high school in 2009. You're doing the calculations now. I'm 32. Um, I saw one of my old chemistry teachers. And she was like, what, why are you here? And I was like, well, I'm you know, I'm intern at a church. I'm in seminary, I'm going to go into ministry and all that. And she said, you? <laughs> yeah, I guess. And a big reason why she said that is because she saw me in my very foolish years. This is not just morality pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is a miracle. And several of you know that. God's real, his Bible's true, and Jesus has fulfilled the covenant, amen? His work is sufficient. We, we don't have self-confidence, we don't have self-sufficiency because Jesus is sufficient. Jesus, he meant it on the cross in John nineteen thirty, 
where he said, it is finished, not it's halfway done. Now I'm really counting on you to finish the rest of it. No, we know we're growing more and more in Christian maturity the more we trust that he really did finish it. He's just applying it to us more and more. His work is totally sufficient for us individually and for us collectively. That's what Paul's trying to tell them here. You don't need anything or anyone else outside of Jesus. Don't ever run to a Jesus plus something else type of system. It's Jesus. Now Jesus works through the means, but he does not depend on the means. He chooses to work through those means. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it will labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stands awake in vain. My friends, it does not matter what kind of a crowd we gather. It does not matter how many meetings we have. It does not matter how many briskets we smoke to try to get hungry people to come in here. It does not matter what we do unless the Lord builds the house. Amen? The reason why we seek to do things like things that are fun, we do like fun, and to teach, and to preach, and to pray, to evangelize, to send people out on missions, is because we trust that's how God builds his house. We're, I just, we're not very impressive. If you're visiting today, I just hope you already realize that. We're really not very impressive. And that's the type of people, the only types of people that God really uses. See, because Jesus is sufficient, we preach his message and we do ministry his way and we do all we can to repent of preaching our own message and doing ministry our own way. What does that confidence in Jesus, what does it look like in real life? Paul actually gives us, I think, two very important verses. Both of them actually in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 15, verses 3 through 4 of 1 Corinthians, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is that? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. First importance. The gospel of grace. Amen? Is this your first importance? College students, as you're going into the semester, is this your first importance? Or do we get distracted and proclaim other things as just as important or more important? I love what Martin Luther said. He was never short of quotes, sometimes very bad ones. But here's a good one. He once said, what is Luther? He's talking during the Reformation when a lot of people were being changed. They were hearing the gospel of grace and they were being transformed and People were tempted to label themselves almost too much. I'm not, I'm not talking about the denomination, but almost too much of Lutheran or a Lutherite. They were not just believing his teachings. They were holding him up as if he were something. And he says, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine. 
nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, I love his language here, how did I, a poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, how did I come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Listen to this. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. He actually translated the Bible into German. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Omsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Listen to this. I did nothing. The word did everything. Amen? The word. His confidence reminds me of a story. There's several legendary stories about Satchel Paige. Satchel Paige was a pitcher, and he was incredibly confident in his abilities. And one time he was so confident that at the beginning of the inning, when the batters lined up, he looked at his outfielders and he said, y'all can come on in. You're good, just take a break. I know, right? Pitch struck one guy out, and he looked around his infielders, and he's like, hey, y'all are good. Take a break. I got it. Well, if you get a hit, man, you're going to be running everywhere. Third batter comes up, no one's out there. Because he don't need nobody. My friends, Jesus Christ doesn't need anybody. But he chooses to use us. He chooses to use us despite us. Haven't you wondered, how can I be a Christian because the church is full of hypocrites? Well, that's the only type of people God uses. That is actually part of the apologetic because we should look at it and say, how in the world can God use her or him? Exactly. Because God's doing a work in them and through them. Because it's all by grace. Amen? Jesus doesn't need our help in growing this church. He doesn't need our help in changing lives or helping addicts recover or granting forgiveness of sins or evangelizing the lost. He, he doesn't need our help for anything. But he uses us. And it's his power through us. That's amazing. Amen? Don't ever think that you somehow are too small or too irrelevant to be used by God. His confidence should change the way we approach life, the way we approach marriage and parenting. Even interacting with our neighbors and in the schools or at our jobs, thinking the gospel of grace has the power to convert them and change them. See, if you want to be confident before God, then you must find your confidence in Jesus Christ. We also see, we must be confident the Father. Look at verse 5. It says our sufficiency is from God. It says again, verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Now, how did I get the Father here? Well, not every time, but most of the time in the New Testament, whenever the word God is mentioned, most often it's actually referring to the person of the Father. It's not, not every time, but You've got to read the context, but in this situation, you do see it's through Christ toward God. Our sufficiency is before the Father. It's also from the Father. Because God alone is sovereign to save. 
God alone is sovereign and in control of bringing out the results and the fruit of our ministry. And here's what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians. If our sufficiency does not come from ourselves, but if it comes from God, then who cares about other people's opinions who think we're not doing things rightly? My friends, the world is always going to ask us to do the things the world's ways. Our job is to be faithful to the scriptures as we are in the world. We're not of the world, but we are in the world. But as we're in the world, we're faithful to God's word. Because that's the only thing that works. So even when we can receive criticisms about why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that, our answer is we're just trying to be faithful to the gospel of grace. God has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. This word minister is actually probably more accurately translated as servants because it's the same Greek word for deacon. Now I think it's very important for us because when, when Paul's saying that we're ministers that we serve, he's saying servants don't create their own meal. They just give what the chef cooked up. Amen? We're not reinventing the wheel here. We're trying to get back, as J.C. Ryle said, we're trying to get back to the old paths, the faithful ways, because God does not change. Even though our times change and we figure out ways to reach our community, but nevertheless, the foundational principles are just God's ways. What is that confidence before the Father? What does that look like in real life? I think a big thing is this. It looks like prayer. I've felt this very much this week, but we often can realize how self-confident and self-sufficient we are because of our prayerlessness. Because we pray when we're dependent, just like a child cries out to their parents because they know they're needy. We need to grow in prayer just like this story of five young college students who were in London one Sunday. They wanted to go hear this very famous preacher preach, and they went to this person's church, and they were waiting for the doors to open, and they were greeted by this stranger. He said, gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you, would you want to see the heating plant of this church? That sounds thrilling. They were obviously not very interested in that because it was a hot day in July, but they didn't want to offend the stranger, so they said yes, and the young men were taken down a stairway. Doesn't sound creepy at all. A door was quietly opened, and their guide, the stranger, whispered to them, this is our heating plant. And inside the door, the students saw 700 people bowing in prayer before the service. Do you know who the stranger was? was Charles Spurgeon. For the majority of the history of the church, the prayer meeting has always been central and a vital element to the life of the church. And if we want to see our church grow in health, then prayer must be vital. Confidence in the Father is what we have through Christ before Him. That's actually why we pray but then lastly, we also see we can have confidence in the Spirit. You see this at the end of verse 6. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The Spirit is the opposite of legalism. He 
is not an it. He brings grace. He brings grace. He brings the message of the gospel that is free, like the TurboTax commercial. Free, free, free. Free, 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 free. There's one word in that on those, on those commercials, just free. That's what the gospel of grace is. It's free. It's absolutely free because Jesus paid it all. And that message that the Holy Spirit brings is the message about how Jesus has wiped out the debts of a multitude of people in all totality. He's not asking for anything in return. He, he gives faith and repentance. He gives it. We, we do obey, but he gives us the power to do it. The gospel is free. So it's amazing. The Spirit, through this gospel of grace, it says he gives life. This Greek word for gives life is actually a unique word. It's the word that is only used of God's resurrecting power. Meaning this, we don't have this power on our own. We're dead in our sins and the Holy Spirit must give us life. And it's the gospel of grace that gives you life. Amen? It's not a message of trying harder or getting a second chance or trying to go on a, now a sinless streak. It just ain't going to happen. It's rather a message that your sins in Jesus Christ have been annihilated, been utterly wiped out. They've been eliminated completely from your record and there's not a chance of there being an Uno reverse card in the pile. My friends... Because of Jesus Christ, he gives you his righteousness and he will never take it from you. And because of your union with him, you now grow in living a righteous life. Amen? He gives it all. That's why we say all to him we owe. It's this gospel of grace that is the power of God individually and collectively. That's why we have confidence in the Holy Spirit that he can do the work. You might hear this gospel of grace and you say, but wait a second. Doesn't this whole message of things being free, doesn't that just make what people want to just live in their own sin? It's a great question. Someone asked Martin Luther that same question. They said, if this is true, talking about how free the gospel of grace is, if this is true, can't a person live however they want? Luther, Luther said, oh yeah, they, they hypothetically could. Let me ask you the question, what do they desire? Because the thing about the gospel of grace is that it's not merely a Wikipedia page full of facts. It is life-transforming news. You can't stay the same. That's why our confidence is in the Holy Spirit, that he can do the work. Dear parents, those of us who struggle to see where in the world are our children in this. Trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the gospel of grace. Trust that as you raise them up in the faith, just keep looking to God and let him do the work. Those of you who are you're so tired of fighting against the same sins that you've been fighting for weeks, months, years, decades... 
My friends, you must remember that the Christian life is like a plant. It grows down underneath the ground where people can't see before it grows up and out. The gospel is at work in your heart. Don't stop observing and trusting and studying the gospel. God is often doing the invisible work before he does the visible work in your heart. Youth, college students, as you're starting out this semester, there's one thing, one person who you must be most confident in. No matter what happens this semester, Christ is who you must be confident in. Don't get distracted. Because everyone else is going to want to distract you. Christ is your confidence. And it was Christ who was most confident. Matthew 27, verse 43, while he was taunted on the cross, someone said, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. Could you imagine hearing that? You want to know why he did not come down from that cross? Because he had confidence that if he stayed up there and took the wrath of God, And trusted his father that even though he would die and be buried, trusting the father that the father would raise him from the dead on the third day. And he was confident in that. And that's why he stayed on the cross. And it was by his confidence that he saved a sinful people. Amen? He was kind of like the French prime minister... I don't even know how to pronounce this name. I'll just call him Clemenceau. That's the best I got. I'm from Alabama. This guy fought many duels with various different rivals, and on one occasion, he surprised his assistant when they were at a Paris railroad station, and he only bought a one-way ticket. And his assistant was like, that's a little pessimistic, isn't it? And he said, no, not at all. Actually, what I do, I take my opponent's one-way ticket to come back. Jesus bought that one-way ticket, my friends. But he trusted that the Father would give him the one upon his resurrection and ascension into heaven. That's who you must believe in. If you want confidence, believe in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that in your mercy that you would deliver us from our own sinful unbelief to grant us confidence you indeed are sufficient. And so now as we head into the time of the supper, Lord, we are asking that in your grace and your mercy that you would feed us and confirm this work of grace in our hearts. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In Matthew 26, 26 to 29, it reads, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread.